We come as your people, humbly and expectant and asking you to root us and ground us in your word. We ask that the word of God, the words of God would be at the center of our lives, our homes, our gospel communities, our churches as we gather corporately. We ask for that. Would you do that? We're not capable of getting there by ourselves, but we ask for your spirit now. So come be among us as we hear from your word. Amen. So you probably know there are 150 psalms, and they cover, really, the entire range of human emotion. In the Psalter, we see emotions like joy and anger and intense sorrow and grief and uh, indecision and questioning of God and really a bunch of emotions that we don't necessarily expect to see from standard religious people. You see a whole range of human experience in the Psalms. But Psalm 1 that we're going to get into today functions almost as like an intro into the entire book. And it really makes a very simple statement. It could be condensed into this by saying there really are, at the, in the end, there really are two ways to live. There really are two ways to live. So let me open up this psalm and we'll get into that statement. Psalm 1 the sixth verse psalm psalm one blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the path of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers but his delight is in the law of the lord and on his law he meditates day and night he is like a tree planted by streams of water that brings forth its fruit in its season and whatever he does shall prosper The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. When we enter the Hebrew Scriptures, we enter a world with sharp and unapologetic contrasts. So there are going to be three contrasts that I highlight in the psalm. Three contrasts. Sharp, intense, unapologetic, surprising to our modern ears. But the first one, in verses 1 through 2, is a contrast in values. The psalm says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But... His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So notice, just at the beginning right here, that the man, the blessed man, is singular. The word is man and not men. It's a person, it's not a people. He is set apart for God. He is unique. His path is different. There is, right off the front, a solitary nature to his existence. He is chosen, set apart, and called by God, granted the favor of God. He's blessed, but he's singular. Whereas the wicked are referred to in the plural. Jesus said that broad is the way that leads to destruction, and we see the wicked in the plural here, but narrow is the way that leads to life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. We see it here in the wicked in the way that they stand, they sit, they scoff. In their words, we see that their very ethos 
is casual. It's indifferent. But the blessed man receives favor from God. He's a recipient of the defined favor of God. It's not an earned favor, but it's given to him happily by God. And he has a different delight than the wicked. That word there, law, would be known to the would be known to the Hebrew listeners as Torah, or in our sense, we would think of that as the teaching. His delight is in the law of the Lord, or in the teaching of God. From, but from a new covenant perspective, in our in our position, we see that as more than the five introductory books of the Bible. But we see all of that. We see that as all of Scripture. His delight is in the words of God, the teaching of God. What the man is actually delighting on is the words as they point him to Christ. As Christ is revealed in all of Scripture, his delight is in Christ himself. And I want us to notice that word delight. He's not, his relationship with the words of God is not one of obligation. It's not one of duty. It's not a chore. He's not obligated. He's delighted. His affections are towards God. He is, I think we could say, he's emotionally alive to the things that please God. He finds deep, real joy in God and His Word. And he is happy, not just in eternity, but at this present moment because he is satisfied in God. I heard a story just recently, a news story on National Public Radio. And NPR was running a story about the staggeringly high number of parents who believe that their children will grow up to be professional athletes. So something like even at the age of high school, even after they probably should have observed enough failure, uh, 26% of parents believe that their children and ho- believe and hope that their children will go on to play professional sports. And as someone who has spent a good deal of time around high school and college athletics, I can verify that that delusion is strong and powerful. Um, I used to, I used to uh, work sometimes at like showcase-type camps, and I always wished that I could tell probably all the parents except one or two, hey, I just saw your kid play catch. Just go get a refund now. Just, just go get a refund. It's not going to work out. But the desire, the desire to see your children succeed in that arena and the identity that most parents get from that is a very powerful and compelling emotion. My, uh, my younger brother played college baseball, and he used to joke, if you want to know how hard a kid in high school throws, you don't need a radar gun. You just need to talk to their parents and then subtract nine. <laughs> but what psychologists found in this study of parents who believe, who believe that their children will play professional sports is that many of them have heard inspirational stories about athletes like Tiger Woods who picked up a golf club when he was nine months old or something of that kind and said, what we need to do is we need to get our kid not just playing for fun, but devoting themselves to their craft at an early age. If we want to see them excel, that would be the pathway. Begin with the high-level coaching and instruction, etc., etc., and do it at a very young age. It's, too, it's never too early to decide which sport you're going to excel at. But the uh, psychologists who made the study, what they discovered is when... 
for most parents, when they made the pursuit of excellence a job, it actually stripped away the very engine that drives any success in that arena. All delight was lost. The game, for most of these children, was no longer fun, and really it is the fun or the joy in the sport that compels excellence. So most of these kids were early burnouts, never seeing, never seeing their talent, probably what little there was, but never seeing their talent actually come to fruition because they didn't have the engine of delight to drive them. The psalmist is getting at a very similar point with this man. His relationship with the word of God and the God behind these words is not one of obligation. It's one of delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And what I want to ask you is, what really is your delight? Do you know that what you delight in and your destination are inextricably linked? They are together. Your delight and where you are headed are two things that work together. Your delight is going to dictate where you are headed. And what I'm telling you is there is a world beyond obligation and inspirational devotionals. There exists a relationship with the Word of God that can be characterized by that word delight. I know that sounds crazy. I know that a lot of us don't functionally believe that. Someone tells us that's true. That's out there. This man lives against the stream, against the ethos of this world. He has a love for God's Word where the wicked walk on a broad, self-assured, morally casual path. There's a contrast in values that we see here at the, start of, at the start of the psalm. His delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. The second contrast we see is a contrast in fruitfulness. Verses 3 and 4 tell us, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. Whatever he does will prosper. The wicked are not so, but they're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Now I want us to understand that in this Middle Eastern context, there were not a lot of trees, okay? This is, we're not talking about like the forests of New Hampshire where you have pine trees that are a dime a dozen. This is a dry, barren, desert climate. And it's once more bringing to mind the solitary and unique nature this man, in a dry climate, in a desert climate, he stands out as one who finds perpetual, ongoing renewal from the words of God, the life-giving words of God. He is rooted. He's grounded. He is full of life, and he's giving life to all. He is like a tree, and many are finding strength and shade in his oversight. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. One of the things that we, that we prayed for this week as a church when we gathered is that we would be rooted and grounded in the love of God as a church, planted deep in who God is and in his love. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, and he brings forth his fruit in its season. The image here is like one of quiet growth. His delight has not only determined his direction, it's also determined his legacy. And in the proper time, his life is going to bear much fruit. Much fruit. Untold fruit. 
quiet growth while others, while the fruitfulness of others will waver, his life will be a source of strength and shade and renewal and life. In all that he does, he prospers. So that word prosper seems wild to us, right? In all that he does, he prospers. I've heard some people teach this as though um, meditation on the word of God is some sort of technique that can be mastered and therefore, if you do that, whatever your hand touches is going to turn to gold. So does that word prosper mean success in every business venture? Every sh- person you shake hands with turns into a friend. Uh, all your monetary ventures just turn to gold. All your kids will be happy. They'll go to the right schools. No. We would not have to go a whole lot further into the Psalter to see that there is suffering that comes to the righteous. There's hardship, and this man is by no means immune to that. Scripture is not telling us that the man will not experience hardship and difficulty and the effects of sin in this world. But if by prosper, what we mean is the favor of God, the nearness of God, the benediction of God, grace upon grace upon grace pouring out on this man, then yes, all that he does will prosper. All that he does will prosper. He will perpetually receive from God grace upon grace upon grace. He will find deep satisfaction in God. But the wicked are not so. They are like the chaff that the wind drives away. So if you didn't grow up in doing any type of harvesting, you might not know that chaff is what is left over when the grain is harvested. After everything gets taken into the barn, the chaff is the brittle, hardened, outside shell. Chaff is is what's left over. The image here is one of instability and worthlessness. It's gone. It blows away. There's no lasting fruit. I still remember um, that my sophomore year of college, I was in finals week. So this was like 2002, and at that time I had a laptop that weighed like nine pounds and could stop a bullet. And we would, I was hammer. I had been procrastinating, and now like my deadline was coming down, and I was, it was like two in the morning, and I'm, um, I was sitting in the cafeteria with a friend of mine just typing away at a paper for finals week. And, you know, I was tired. 2 a.m. was not unusual for me at that time, but I did not have a lot of juice left. And I was wrapping this thing up, when my friend spilled her drink all over my keyboard. And there are, you know, there are some water-resistant technologies that exist now, but this computer was certainly not equipped to handle an entire fountain drink of Coke on the keyboard. So I just heard some bubbling and some hissing. It popped kind of like Rice Krispies, and then my screen just went completely blank. And everything, all my work, Worthless. Gone. It had absolutely and categorically disappeared. My activity had become pointless. Wasted. Totally useless. For the wicked, that's an entire lifetime. That's an entire lifetime. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Blown away. Look at the instability here compared to the quiet rootedness of the blessed man. The wicked rushing around, standing, sitting, scoffing, blown away in the end. 
versus the quietness, the rootedness, the growth of the blessed man. There's a contrast here. Quietness and fruitfulness versus restlessness and instability. There's a contrast. Not only in values, also in fruitfulness. What is left behind gets blown away. The third contrast here would be a contrast, finally, in outcomes. In verse 5 and 6, it says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That word therefore means because of this, therefore, because of this biblical reality that we can walk according to the words of God or according to the counsel of our own hearts, whatever seems wise to us, therefore, again, we see an either-or scenario that makes us uncomfortable. The the psalm is saying there is a real day of judgment. He's unequivocal about that. That day of judgment is real and it is bearing down on us. We will all face it. And the wicked will not stand in that day. There will be a distinct separation between the righteous and the unrighteous. And there is no scenario here painted of a third or middle way. There are not additional paths to take. And yet it says the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now that, that word knows does not mean that the Lord does not know the way of the wicked. God is sovereign. He knows everyone's ultimate destination. But he knows intimately, affectionately, that the righteous will experience the blessing and benediction and favor and protection of God. The blessing of being known as children of God. The Lord, if you are in him, knows our way. The Lord knows our way. What comfort is it to know that the Lord knows our way? In the midst of any uncertainty that we have, he knows our way. So this call of Psalm 1 is one to, call, to dwell deep, to actually delight in Scripture. And I want to say, this may go, go without saying, but this is something that goes, that is not simply for the Hebrew rabbis. It's not just for pastors. It's not for religious professionals, people who pursue that as a vocation. I've had probably too many conversations in recent years with people who are wistfully kind of casually, regretful about their relationship with God's Word. So I need you to ask, as you think on this, what is it that you are delighting in? What is it that your heart tends to ponder when your thoughts are left to themselves? What are the things that provide you with most delight and joy? Where is your delight taking you? And do you know that your delight and your direction are absolutely and inextricably linked. So you might, might be asking the question, how do I actually get to delight? I understand what you are saying, but that word does not characterize my relationship with God's word. I think in reading scripture, our starting places are different. So when, if you've read the Bible at all, it may come from a sense of duty. It may be cut, come from your exposure to something like Sunday school or a class. It may be because you grew up going to church. 
It might be that you felt like you are supposed to. Um, it might simply be curiosity, and it may in fact be true that you never do. Regardless, we don't start in some, our motivations are never awesome to begin with. We are at best prompted. We are at best prompted, okay? What we can do, if delight does not characterize our relationship with the Word of God, what we can do is act in faith and ask for Him to get us there. One of the most absolutely pivotal points in my life was as a 13-year-old kid. I probably at that time had a huge, hefty Bible that my parents brought, bought for me. I did not understand it. I didn't come to it with a ton of enthusiasm or zeal. I was prompted by my parents, who were people who believed the Bible and doing the best that they could to raise me. And at one time, up in my room, I was reading... Philippians, probably because I was supposed to. And I read Paul's words when he said, what things were gained to me, I counted loss for Christ. And I read what, when Paul said, I consider that there is nothing better, nothing better than knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. I count everything else as loss. And I don't know why, but I know that as a teenager, as a young teenager, the Spirit of God chose that time and place to burn those words in my heart. I was not delighting as a starting point, but that moment alone was a pivot point in my entire life. I have no doubt at all that the Spirit made those words alive and real to me and has the power to do so, to change our relationship with Him through the words of this book as He reveals Himself. So I cannot say, here are the steps that you take to begin to delight in God's word, but I know that we can begin by faith to place ourselves in those positions and ask for the Spirit of God to respond to us. Psalm 1 tells us that the happiest, most blessed life is a life saturated in God's word. I need us to believe that, to pursue that. Psalm 1 envisions people chosen by God who love the Word of God, who believe it, who find hope in it, who delight in it, who see themselves as recipients but also stewards of the next generation. To, they, love, they love the words of God. They love the Christ found in it. They love its moral requirements and they are committed to delighting in it and passing it on to those that come behind. That's the blessed life. We need to see that take root in our homes. We need to see that take root in our gospel communities. We need to be a people who, when we gather, love God's words corporately. So this, what I'm saying today at the start of the new church here is simply that simple. Let's be those people. Let's ask God for help. Pray with me, please. Father, we ask that you would move in this congregation, move in our congregation in Malden, and by your Spirit make us people rooted and grounded and delighted in your word. We ask for that. We pray for it together. In Jesus' name, amen.